I'm Peter Medlin, what's up, and welcome back to Teacher's Lounge. And before we get into anything, I want to take a second and thank everyone who has helped keep the show going during coronavirus. Thank you to the teachers, the parents, the students, everyone we've talked to over the last month or so, and of course, thank you for continuing to listen. All right, well, let's get on with it. This week, we've got a fun one. Jim Canis is on the show. He's a roots musician and jazz guitarist, and he's also been a music teacher for over 20 years. Canis has been an artist in residence with the Illinois Arts Council at schools across the state. If I couldn't play music at the elementary level with my kids, I couldn't do this job. I have to be in there with them. And I tell them, I go, hey, don't even think of this as a classroom. This is a band. We're a band now. Jim is also retiring after this year, which you can imagine feels a little strange given the circumstances. We talked about e-learning, about being an artist outside of the big city, his passion for American music, and obviously we didn't have him on without making him play us a little something. So stay tuned. And, and you know what? Why don't we hear one of his songs right now? Take it away, Jim Canis. Many folk songs are regional and you hear them more in different parts of the country. And this is one that comes from the Midwest and is real popular. It's always been popular with, with my students. And I'm sure you've heard it before. It's called The Cat Came Back. Freddie Wilson had a cat that he didn't want to keep He offered him for free and tried to sell him cheap He called upon the preacher one Sunday for advice Preacher said, leave him here, it would be so nice But the cat came back, he wouldn't stay away He was sitting on the porch the very next day The cat came back, he didn't want to roam The very next day he was home, sweet home Freddie put him on a ship and they headed for Salon. The ship was overloaded, more than 20,000 ton, not far away from shore. The cargo ship went down, there wasn't any doubt about it, everybody drowned. But the cat came back, he wouldn't stay away. He was sitting on the porch the very next day. The cat came back, he didn't want to roam. The very next day he was home, sweet home. Very next day he was home sweet home. Mm-hmm. Now Freddie put him aboard with a man in a balloon who would give the cat away. The man in the moon, the balloon, it didn't rise. It burst into bits instead. Ten miles from there, they found a man cold dead. But the cat came back. He wouldn't stay away. He was sitting on the porch. The very, very next day, oh, the cat came back. He didn't want to roam. The very next day, he was home, sweet home. The very next day, he was home, sweet home. Mm-hmm. 
next day he was home, sweet home. Am I right? That is so good. And stay tuned because there is more where that came from at the end of the show. In the meantime, I want you to be a part of the show. We want to hear from you, students, parents, teachers, everyone. Send us an email at teacherslounge at niu.edu and tell us what it's been like learning or teaching from home. And if you want, record your thoughts, your feelings, anything you want to into your phone with your voice memos app and then send the voice file over to teacherslounge at niu.edu, and we'll have it on the show like we did last week and the week before then. Okay, so believe it or not, the last time we did this show, we still didn't know if in-person schools were going to be closed for the rest of the school year. Well, spoiler alert, they are closed. In fact, it's hard to be sure of what school is going to look like next year. Both K-12 and higher ed officials are weighing options and trying to be proactive in case COVID-19 concerns carry on into the fall. For example, major changes are coming to schools like Beloit College. Beloit officials already moved summer courses online, but they knew they needed to be more proactive. They met with faculty and decided to divide semesters into two condensed modules. Eric Boynton is the provost and dean of the college. He says it makes the college more flexible if the pandemic lingers. We can minimize the destruction COVID has on our students by allowing that first module to go online, but the second one, then we could bring people back to campus. Boynton says it's better if students take no more than two classes online per module. He says that's easier on them and that this spring the college has seen the challenge for students taking four online courses at once. This is a one-year pilot program, but Boynton says if it's successful, they could continue the new model. They're also launching a program called the Midwest Flagship Match, which for Illinois students guarantees tuition prices at the private liberal arts college will be the same or lower than at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Other schools like the University of Illinois system are also creating financial aid funds and relief efforts to help students cover costs for next year. And speaking of students coming into college next year, their high school counselors are using mostly email to try to help them plan for the future and just get through this year. Many students are changing their college plans because of the pandemic. Kathy Sabolski is a counselor at DeKalb High School. She's been communicating with her students over email since they moved to e-learning. She says students may be less likely to move far away due to safety as well as financial reasons. Sabolski says college planning has been delayed for many students as they focus on e-learning. Yeah, students were, were planning on going away to college thinking that mom and dad both had a job and they're both laid off right now. That certainly is a concern. A number of colleges and universities have extended admissions and scholarship deadlines, but Sabolski says they could have a tough time handling the volume of financial aid need because of COVID-19. Sabolski says applying for scholarships is also more challenging in some cases because students can't get their hands on official transcripts. All right, did that all count as an as a news roundup? I'm not sure, but if not, let's give you one more story and cue the roundup music. There we go. Doctoral candidates in education at Northern Illinois University are conducting COVID-19 related research. I caught up with one of those students and their advisor about the work they're doing for underserved Chicago students. Students at Youth Connection Charter Schools in Chicago are often from vulnerable populations. Some are homeless or young parents, and many work in essential positions that put their health at risk during the COVID-19 crisis. They're also expected to continue their education. Laura Ruth Johnson is an associate professor at the NIU College of Education and a YCC board member. 
She's leading researchers who are learning how they can help these students. YPCS said at the beginning of this, only about 30% of their students were engaged. And for many of them, this really is their last chance to complete high school. Christine Weber is one of those doctoral candidates. Her work has been on engaging students. Her team launched a 24-hour hotline connecting them to food, mental health services, or medical attention. Webster says it can be difficult to reach students over the phone or through email due to limited technology access. Schools have hand-delivered flyers to some students' residents. E-learning content can also be rigid, so Webster and her colleagues are also working on making the curriculum more culturally relevant. Okay, now it's time for my conversation and more music with Jim Canis. Is there a feeling of some sort of, like you mentioned, tying up loose ends, is there kind of an anticlimax to it? There is. I, for myself, I can only speak. But um, the fact that people are retiring, obviously that's been in the works way before anybody knew that this was going to happen, you know. So we'll find a way to, you know, close it. Yeah, of course. Have you been doing a lot of, uh, a lot of teaching from home? What, is, what does that look like for you? We are so busy. We are so busy. And for me, it's 100% content, okay? Because people that are in the teaching, um, especially at the elementary level, know that a big piece of that is motivating your kids and managing classrooms and managing behavior and dealing with whatever they come to you with. That part of the teaching is different, so I feel like I've come back to my roots as far as dealing with content. We want to be careful we're not just talking to ourselves and get as many kids on board and interacting as possible. And for me, it comes down to quality versus quantity. So getting back to your roots as in you feel like you can focus more on the content itself instead of all the extraneous things that you have to deal with in the classroom? To be honest, yeah. One thing that's universal is everybody misses the kids profoundly. And you would, I think, prefer the challenges of behavior management in many cases to not having it at having any interaction at all. As far as creativity goes, you don't have a choice, man. Of course, we have guidelines. You know, and we have direction, but we have to figure so much out on our own and collaborate. The collaboration meetings are are through the ceiling. We're just everyone is sharing ideas and it's like this constant think tank. It's really cool. That should just continue. I mean, in many ways it does, but I think it's elevated. I'm also I started teaching at Elgin College adjunct. Um, so I'm balancing that and doing some private lessons. The private lessons are really challenging because, you know, it, you have to monitor what the student is doing all the time. And um, then if it doesn't sound right, you don't know if their articulation is off or if it's just the, you know, the bandwidth or what, you know. So you are, you're pretty busy these days then with all that. I have been with the district a long time I'm getting about 21 years, I think, full-time, but I've been part-time for probably half of that. And during that part-time, I was an artist in residence with the Illinois Arts Council and doing all sorts of art musician things, you know, freelance. I remember when I first got the job in um, DeKalb, they asked me a question like, why do you want to teach? It was one of the interview questions. And I just couldn't answer. I was like, that was a funny question because like, well, I teach. I just do teach. Yeah. You know, and I will continue to teach in one way or another, in one format or another, because it's in your blood to show people stuff. My favorite subject, both of my kindergarten 
<laughs> report cards. My teachers said I had two kindergarten teachers because we had an afternoon and a, a morning kindergarten. They said, yeah, Jimmy's favorite subject is show and tell. So That makes sense as a performer I know. too, right? And, and then when my wife, um, uh, she, she passed on years ago, but she, when I found that report card and showed it to her, she just laughed and she says, that's what you do for a living. And she was making reference to the assemblies and touring around to different schools and showing people things and explaining and teaching, you know, so... Well, and I think even beyond assemblies and literally showing people like that, I think that you could say that that's just being a performer and, and being someone that, that does that is, is show and tell, right? Yeah, and I tell the kids that, I go, hey, you know, when you use the word show off a lot, there's a negative connotation to that. But we need you to be a show off when you're doing this, you know, and so this is, this is an appropriate way. That's not a bad thing. You know, it's, I I try not to be too full of myself, but I want to be just enough full of myself that I pass on some positive energy to people because I think of my role models and the ones, and especially that are very famous. And I think of what did I learn from those people? I mean, like Alison Krauss and Corky Siegel and Steve Goodman and Pat Metheny being able to be around those individuals at a young age, it was all about attitude. It was all about positive energy and attitude. That's what I learned from those people, you know, and others that are motivating. That's a word I, I've been saying this at some meetings lately. I don't hear this word too much these days. It's not a cool education word, but I, to me, it's still all about motivation. Maybe in, inspiration is, is a good word, but... My best teachers motivated me to not put my guitar down. Everything I do revolves around my guitar. Yeah. Everything I do in teaching revolves because that's how I learned to learn was on the guitar. So when I studied the guitar, that's when I learned how to do math. Not that I need music to do math, but it opened up the learning channels for me. That's why the arts in education is not an option. It's, it's just not an option. It's not a frill. It's absolutely crucial, not just for the people like me that learn through sound and the kind of process that goes into performance, but for other people that maybe are less apt to think and learn like that. I'm curious, as someone that, that teaches and helps kids learn music, what the difference for you as a, as a performer is and what you get out of it. There's a big difference because um, in performance, I mean, in education, it has to stay kid-centered or student-centered. And no matter what you do, you have to have your radar on 100% of the time to what's going on around you, which in, in a way that's not different than performing for an audience and being aware of them. But in, an, in a strictly performance setting, it's totally okay to close your eyes and just kind of block them out and be into yourself and you pull them in that way. But with teaching and using the arts or performance in a classroom, you, you are constantly aware of motivation and connection and relevancy. And I'm a big advocate of being a collaborator with the students as far as music goes. I, if I couldn't play music at the elementary level with my kids, I couldn't do this job. I have to be in there with them. And 
I tell them, I go, hey, don't even think of this as a classroom. This is a band. We're a band now, okay? I'm the leader, and we're in a band together, you know, and get them to be part of the performance in that way. Does a lot of your uh, your classes still have to do with American music and, and tracing back the roots of that? Because I know that was something that you focused on for a long time, right? It varies. In some cases, I mean, it's always a part of what I'm doing because if I'm not playing the banjo or doing the spoons or something with found object instruments or, of course, the guitar and the fiddle and, and Americana music is always a part of it, including jazz and blues and and um, other styles of music. might have actually been in the interview that you did with Sessions from Studio A here at, at WNIJ, too, that you were talking about teaching American music and the roots of that, and you said that it was in, in some way about, you know, feeling like no matter who you are, you can have some sort of ownership of what American music is because of its different, you know, roots that you're tracing back, and I just thought that was a really fascinating perspective on, on what American music is. Right, and I remember that. And it depends. Like, if you're coming in, we did, I actually was here as an artist in residence before I was teaching, and we did a video. And the video, one of the inspirations for the video was have, starting to see all the various ethnical cultures in DeKalb. So it was a while back. And wanting to identify culture so that we could have a better understanding of each other. There were There's two parts to that. One is being in a community that's heterogeneous and promoting the idea that American that they're not living in a bubble, you know, for example, if it's a rural community, and that country music didn't pop out of a studio in Nashville because country music has the banjo in it. The banjo comes from Africa, you know, and the guitar is from Spain, you know, and so it's like, you don't live in a bubble as an American. You are influenced by people all around the world. And that's really important to me. My heritage is of, of um, Greek descent. Uh, my mother was born in New York. My dad was born in Canada, but they all went back to the old country at an early age because of complications with the war, my dad's parents dying and, and different things like that. So... I'm second generation, but I think it was my daughter pointed out to me, well, you're second, or my son said, you know, you're second generation, but because of socially, or really you're like first generation because they grew, grew up speaking both languages. And so that's something that's dear to me, the, the culture and how your culture has been a part of American music. And then the other part of it is more obvious, I think, is what, what you were making reference to is like, so you have this group of people, you know, you have like a Latin background, African-American and Irish and Scottish and all these different backgrounds. And obviously, the easy part for me is showing how all that stuff culminates in American music. That's the easier part. So those right. are the two, two, two ways to look at that idea. Right. And in the way that, too, that, that really good music brings people together. But I think it is something extra to spelling out explicitly like this is your and this is why you know everyone fits into this This is why this is for everyone instead of just it kind of being an intuitive thing that you feel about it yeah i mean it's second nature i don't i do not understand you know the idea that we don't need more people from all over the world becoming part of our culture i just don't get that at all 
And, and going back to, I know that you've you've played lots and lots of different styles of music for you know your whole career. How do you feel like your relationship has changed in terms of the things that you gravitate towards and the styles that you've gravitated towards over the year? And where are you at now with it? Uh, well, that you know that's a a blessing and a curse because I've had record um, companies say. I don't know what to do with you. And this was a long time ago. You know, you have this, and of course, that's really different now because I think the eclectic nature of a of a musician is people are more accepting that you know it doesn't you don't fit into a category, and that's a good thing. Part of what being an artist is is the evolution of that sound. Right. At, at some point, you have to let go of your mentors, and you have to let let all those influences come into play and come out as they do. Do you call yourself a, a folk musician? No, no. I. The shortest version I can come up with is root, Roots Musician. <laughs> if you must come up with one. I have to, I guess I have to. Roots Musician Guitarist. And Roots Musician and, and does kind of imply, you know, the multi... If I was to do a solo performance at, like, I'm going to be... A, if Girler House, if that, if that festival still happens in June, I think it is, I'll play different instruments, and that's yeah. that's what I do in that kind of a setting: the fiddle and the banjo and sing and harmonica and all that. And it's just it's been hard for me to not do all those instruments because they all it's they each have their own voice, and I feel like I need that for some reason, and I always have needed that. I remember giving away all my harmonicas when I was in high school because I and I was playing the piano and the guitar and the harmonica, and I said. I go through these phases of focusing. I got to let go of all this stuff and have a focus because I do not like to be introduced as a kind of a jack of all trades. I can't stand that, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But no, Amer I, American yeah. music sort of suggests multi instruments too. In the musician world, it does. It's interesting you say that. Yeah, no, that's something I've thought about a lot too, and that I, I feel like I've always had a lot of different interests and I would go back and forth between them and I was always kind of jealous of people that had their singular focus and that was all that they cared about and that's all that they stuck with but then I think as I've gotten a little bit older I've realized what a, a gift having multiple interests are and being able to switch from those things. Again it's a blessing and a curse it's the same yeah. thing but what did I have to give up to do that? Well I don't know all the jazz standards that I should know by memory, you know. I maybe right. can't play at the tempos that I would like to and sound, you know, there's certain things I have to give up for the next guy to cover. And but that's, you know, that's my choice and I have to live with it and be okay with that. Right. And then also recognize the things that you've gained from doing other things. I mean, Jim, I was I was looking up different, you know, there's a couple of videos that I was looking at of you performing and there's one of them where I was like, "Okay, he's playing the guitar." And then I was like, oh, now Jim is playing a Native American wooden flute. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, how does that even, how does that happen? I, you know, that has its own story. <laughs> <laughs> I was an artist in Southern Illinois for this 4-H group. And there were all these artists that embarked on this project. And there was a Native American lady there that was doing beads with the kids and she liked what I was doing on my recorder and my recorder I I called it my Native American wannabe flute because I had I was playing Native American music to what I thought it was and she started sending me these CDs of Carlos Nakai and different 
Native Americans. And it was weird because I, I hadn't consciously listened to that stuff, just kind of what I heard in my unconscious over the years. And I was playing that kind of stuff. And there's an element that is a thread between the Native American flute and flamenco guitar playing and jazz and bluegrass. I mean, those sound like disparate sort of styles, right? But there's an improvisational element. Yeah, and when you when you studied music in school, was it more traditional? Was it jazz, or what did that look like? I know that you went to Northern and and you went to school in Boston too, right? Yeah, um, Boston University. I was an education major, and I it was actually guitarist Pat Metheny that I said, you know, Pat, I don't want to go to Boston. I don't want to be a product of Berklee School of Music. Nothing against that, but I had other ideas as far as my styles go already, you know. And so he said, just go to Boston and be in the environment. So then I hang around with the Berkeley Cats and, and went to BU as an, educa- an elementary ed education major. Take, I was taking my gen eds at that time. What was it that made you want to come back specifically to... Northern Illinois. Where <laughs> I missed I missed my um, my wife. It wasn't my wife yet, and I knew I just felt like if we we're gonna continue that relationship, I need, we needed to be together. I didn't want to do it long term, and yeah, Northern definitely was a better place for me to explore the kind of approach that I wanted to explore with folk music as far as integration into the rural community. It was Pete Seeger. Mike, Mike Seeger, I think, said that, you know, the only way to really become a folk musician is to be immersed in the culture. Yeah, I think that you, I think I heard you say something in one of the things I listened or watched about how country music, you feel like, is able to connect you a little bit to those rural roots. Yeah, because, yeah, I love country music. I played the pedal steel guitar for years in these country bands and these honky tonks and with the decal foot stompers, too at Andy's, you know, um, when I was in college and we did a bunch of Johnny Cash and old standards and the, the pedal steel guitar is related to the Hawaiian guitar. And I felt some kind of a connection to where I grew up, which was what I call rural Hinsdale. My dad worked for International Harvester. He was an ag uh, major in college and engineer. And that's where they tested equipment. And it was wide open. It wasn't the Hinsdale we see now. And when I came to DeKalb, it was like, oh, this is like how it was when I grew up, you know. So I was struggling with, well, I'm a musician. I should be in an urban area, but I really love to be out in the country. And that those two worlds just don't seem to work together. But, you know, I, it, it worked out fine. Yeah, it seems like as a musician, but then, I mean, also just generally as people, you know, you kind of can go one or two directions from growing up. Because I'm, I'm from Sandwich, so I'm from, you know, a rural area too. My backyard was a cornfield growing up. And I think you either really own that and, and draw into it or you rebel against it. And you're like, I don't want any, want any part of the country. I want to get as far, far away as possible for it. And I think a part of being an adult has both been music-wise and then also just like culturally is being like, there are ways that I can reclaim these things and find what I liked about them and why I enjoyed them in the first place. Right. And for me, it was a matter of my personal values coming together with my art, with my art form and finding out how those two can work together. Yeah. Do you do much songwriting these days? All, all the songs that I've written with 
songwriting in terms of lyrical songs and topical songs have been with kids and have been with students of all ages. I tend to write music instead of songs, and I... That's what you need to do. I, I need to do that. I do. I've got a lot of ideas, and I've got a lot of people that can help me, but I'm not the singer-songwriter type in terms of the lyrics. I'm the singer-songwriter type in terms of the styles that go with those genres. Yeah, I'm sure let's get some really fun stuff when you're getting to write lyrics with some of your elementary school kids. I'm sure that I, I'd love to hear some of their ideas. Oh, yeah. We, we, yeah. We've had a lot of... I've, I've, so I've written lots of songs, but not lately. Yeah. And, and, and going back to, to music education, I'm curious, is there something about teaching music that you think is, you know, aside from just scales or that sort of thing, what is it about that about music education that you think is more important than people might realize? A bigger part of it than people might realize. Just people who are just starting out learning. What's a bigger part of it than they might realize? There's definitely like a readiness piece, and so as far, and as far as the as far as what we teach in music, that's only part of it. The scales, the arpeggios, and you know what is an F sharp and key signatures and all that. That's only part of it. The the bigger part of it is making the music. And Victor Wooden, bassist Victor Wooden, wrote a, a book. It's called, I think, called The Music Lesson. And it really changes the whole idea of what the elements of music are. And in terms of the elements of music, we normally think of harmony, melody, and rhythm, you know, but what they are. And Corky Siegel wrote a book about um, dynamic, the language of dynamic variation. And that really cuts to like how you express yourself with music, whether you're playing on a comb or a spoon or a, or a cello. That's the music. The better, the more you hang around with great musicians, the more you start to hear, you know, it really doesn't matter what instrument you play on that much. Your musicianship is going to come through. So it's almost about the music. It's about capturing that kind of feeling of the music than it is at a certain point when you're at that level of musicianship that you can kind of just do that no matter what you know, you're picking up. Yeah, and of course it's better to have a better instrument, but this is my opinion, okay? But I, it's been supported. Well, one of the last things I would ask you then too is, is, like I said, there's a lot of people who are taking this time and trying to be more creative and being like, you know what? I think this is finally the time that I learn how to play the piano or learn how to play the guitar. What would your advice be to people doing that for the first time right now and trying to pick that up? Well, there's many, many musicians hurting really, really hurting right now. And there's a lot of mus good musicians giving lessons online. I would say the way I learned how to play guitar in high school is I wanted I gave something up, and what I gave up was TV. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna watch TV, so I didn't watch TV, and I practiced instead. So if 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 this is a unique time, carve out that hour a day, and I would say don't feel like you have to practice an hour a day, a half an hour a day. You can practice. 20 minutes three or four times a day too or whatever it can be broken up like that too in different ways yeah maybe maybe do that instead of re-watching the office for the seventh time <laughs> yeah, right. all right jim well that was pretty much all that i wanted to talk about i know you were gonna you were thinking about playing a little bit something if you do want to do that great i will get out of the way all right so now this song was written now we're gonna do this with with kindergarten It was written by Larry Penn uh, from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His wife worked with special needs kids, and this whole song is a metaphor um, on special needs. It's called I'm a Little Cookie, and here it is. Mm -hmm. 
I'm a little cookie, yes I am, you know that I was made by the cookie man On my way from the cookie pan A little piece broke off me Oh, a little piece broke off me Mm-hmm A little piece broke off me Mm-hmm But I can taste just as good as a regular cookie can I'm a little chocolate Yes, I am. You know that I was made by the chocolate man on my way from the chocolate stand. Got a little bend in me. Oh, I got a little bend in me. Mm-hmm. I got a little bend in me. Uh-huh. But I can taste just as good as a regular chocolate can. Yes, I am. You know that I was made by the gumdrop man on my way from the sugar can. A little chip broke off of me. A little chip broke off me. Mm-hmm. A little chip broke off me. Mm-hmm. But I can taste just as good as a regular gumdrop can. Now you know that I'm a little cookie. Yes, I am. I was made by the cookie man On my way from the cookie pan A little piece broke off me Now I'm not as round as I might be But I'll taste just as good, you wait and see And I can love back just as hard As a regular cookie can I can love back just as hard As a regular Cookie can As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. And along with that, send us your suggestions for topics we should be covering. The email, once again, teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, subscribe, leave us a rating, share it, whatever you can do. It's the best way that we get more perspectives on the show and more people can find us. A special thanks, of course, to Jim Canis for coming on the show and playing us some music. And a thanks to the Rockford area band, Kind Ofs, for providing the awesome interstitial music that you hear during the show. You can find more of their music on SoundCloud and check out their appearance on WNIJ's own Sessions from Studio A. And like I said earlier, Jim has also been on that show, so check out his episode too if you're itching for more music. Special thanks to Spencer Tritt for making our logo. I've been your host, Peter Medlin. Stay safe, stay healthy, maybe go for a walk, and I will be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. 